Okay, Wes. I'm almost there. This'll be the last machine. And then they're all gonna be Ubuntu. Are you ready? Oh, yeah. What? Uh-oh. Oh, no. <sighs> we better ask Noah. This is Linux Unplugged, episode 223, for November 14th, 2017. Welcome to Linux Unplugged, your weekly Linux soul injection. Now featuring 100% more of Chris, Rikai, Wes, myself, and of course, the Mumble Room. This hour, we're going to take your phone calls. 1-855-450-6624. And uh, welcome, everyone. Welcome, Chris. Welcome, Wes. I'm welcoming you guys to your own show. I'm, I'm kind of the guest, right? No, you're here, Noah, and you're saving the day for us. It's a Fedora 27 extravagant. Blowout! It's awesome. Yeah. And, yeah. and you know what? It's funny. As a Fedora guy, I'm the only person uh, as one of the hosts that's not actually running Fedora 27. So how pathetic <laughs> is that? No, well, to make it up for you, all three of us are running 27 right now in the studio. How many people in the Mumble Room? Hello, Mumble Room. How many of you are running Fedora 27? Yep. 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 <laughs> it's just sure. Oh, my gosh. The live long day. Oh, uh, yeah. Every day, all day, of course. Well, well, I think this is going to be a super fun show. I, I, I don't. I think we've only done one other episode of Linux Unplugged where we've had a bunch of us all in the studio because sometimes it's not even it's not even technically possible because there are only so many microphones that we have when we're all together, right? And so this is and and if I'm filling in, uh, oftentimes you're out of town or you're traveling. So this is the first time we've actually gotten together for this you know big Linux party, so to speak. Yeah, it's pretty cool, and we have a great turnout in the mumble room this week. Including, I'm very excited to say, we have a special guest from the Fedora Project who will be chatting with us a little bit. Uh, Dan from Elementary OS just had himself quite the interview, and we'll talk to Dan a little bit about that. But we also just have like a great showing. Like Popey and Wimpy pulled themselves away from Rust to be here with us, guys. I'm very excited about that. That's that's great. And Kits and Kitty actually I, playing Rust whilst we're in the mobile oh, room. By the I, way, yeah, oh, we didn't pull ourselves away. Sorry. Yeah, okay. I I should have known. And Kits and Kitty's here. I don't. I can't. Kits and I, I Kitty. I can't even remember how long it's been since you've been here. But I'm. It may even been last week. But I'm excited. Either way, no, it's going to be a good show. I agree. So starting off, the, uh, the, the first thing that we're talking about today is Firefox Quantum. So tell me, uh, you know, as a Firefox user, you get to enlighten me because I don't know what Firefox Quantum is. Oh, geez. Oh, oh, it's, it's Quantum Day, Noah. It's not, okay. just fi- it's not just Firefox 57. Today is and shall ever re- be remembered as Quantum Day. And it's, this is it. This is where Mozilla realized that they could bunch up a bunch of features all at once and actually get everybody excited about their browser for a chance, for a change, and really make a big splash. No, 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 no. I'm not being critical. What I'm saying is Mozilla really figured this shit out. Like, they have have staged a bunch of fundamental changes to the browser. A new UI. They've switched back to Google for the default search. And the quantum part... The quantum part refers to a brand new way of getting shit done in Firefox. It's twice as fast as uh, the previous version of Firefox. It has a new CSS engine, supports multi-process architecture, so you can prioritize for different CPUs, different jobs. You can have uh, properly sandboxed and isolated tabs, and it is significantly faster. 
for the same really? essentially yes for essentially the same yep. memory footprint it's that's fantastic it's the version of firefox we've all been waiting for since chrome was released <laughs> well so I, I i don't know if i've been waiting I don't know if I've been necessarily waiting for that, but it is nice to see Firefox starting to step up and compete on in some of the same ways that Chrome has been competitive. Because, you know, as a person, and I've bounced, you have to, but we've both bounced back and forth between oh, yeah. Chrome and Firefox. And, and for me, we kind of, we're opposite, right? I primarily stick to Firefox and every once in a while I try that Chrome thing out. In fact, I'm using Chrome today. Um, but there are legitimately performance things that I notice anytime I'm using Chrome that just don't exist in Firefox. To me, it feels sturdier. It feels faster. It feels like the pages pop faster than Chrome. Um, right. I don't have all of my extensions yet, which have always is, has always been my sort of my my problem. But I'm trying to just come up with other ways to do that stuff. It's pretty. It's pretty nice, Noah. Huh. Well, that is exciting. I, you know, I I knew that today was National Pickle Day. I did not know that today was, <laughs> was National Quantum Day for Firefox. But today I learned. You know what? In the show notes, I put a link to uh, a blog post at hacks.mozilla.org, and they talk about um, everything. But the things that I like the most is they talk about laying the foundation for what they call coarse-grained parallelism. And um, it's it, it feels like uh, it feels like they they looked at what Chrome's doing and they went, "Shit, we really have a problem here. We've got to really fundamentally fix this." And hmm. instead of pulling like a Microsoft approach where they just sort of like back port fixes to Windows and Windows just keeps getting a bigger and bigger beast that can do more stuff, mm-hmm. they really did like a, a house cleaning here. They went through and they broke some stuff and they reinvented some stuff and they replaced some stuff and they redesigned the UI. And, they, and, then, they, and then very clever, very clever for the Mozilla project, they, they saved it all up. For this big release, this big quantum release, and they gave it a name, and of course that's from the quantum engine. They gave it, they gave it this whole spin. It's been it, we've been talking about it for months now, and it all landed. And by doing so, it gave them time to test and refine the features, so they were ready for launch. And it gave everyone a common target to look at for Firefox. Yeah, and it it gives you a night and day experience. If as long as you don't have any extensions that block the quantum engine. It, it really gives you a night and day experience, and it uses, in, at least on my machines, it uses less memory than Chrome. Okay, so here's, here's, really the, here's really the bottom line question. Who out there, and I'm kind of looking at you guys, Mumble Room, who out there is currently a Chrome user and is now, as a result of, of this news, considering switching back to Firefox? That would be me. Okay, tell me about it. Yeah. Tell me about it. Well, well, you know, if they claim to be faster, I really want to look at it. And see if they claim to be if they claim to be faster, and they actually are. They've got a new you. They've got me switching back after probably several years. Okay, so but, what, uh, yeah. So what, what does what does Firefox offer you that you're that you're willing to jump ship on a, on a working platform? What does Firefox offer you that's above and beyond? Why is it that if both are doing the same thing, basically what we're saying is Firefox is caught up? Why then are you going to jump off Chrome to come back to Firefox? Well, one thing I've noticed is that fi- Chrome can get very laggy. As it goes, because like if you have a ton of open tabs, it will actually bog down your processor because it is actually literally running each tab in a process. Chrome seems to be streamlining it into like shared processes per tab. See, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So if it is if it truly is faster and more efficient on the memory, more efficient on the CPU, then that gives me more power to do other things like video editing or audio production, that kind of thing. OK, that makes mm-hmm. sense. Anyone else? 
I'm looking at it. Partly. Okay. Uh, who, who was it that spoke up? One of our friends across the pond? I think it'd be me. Yeah, okay. Sort of was switching over from, I think when they went Firefox 56, which was the recent speed up, I've sort of been about from Chrome going to about 50-50 between Chrome and Firefox. Mm-hmm. Some of it is just partly to half de fi stuff and give support back to Firefox as a right. competition against Google. Right. And that's my that's my position on it, too, is a, a large reason that a, a large portion of the reason that I put up with some of the things I put up with in Firefox is largely because I like the organization. I like what they do. I like what they stand for. I like their principles and I want to support that. And I am willing to sacrifice a certain amount of features and a certain amount of usability, I guess, is what oh, it really boy. amounts to. I mean, that's the truth. I'm willing to sacrifice oh, some of those things. Just you know what that to- means. Huh. That's bad. If they cannot. That cannot factor in at all in their strategy. Not I a agree. single tiny itsy bit. If I that's agree what from, they're relying on, then they're not going to get adoption. I, I agree from a business standpoint. However, I think that they have earned enough good – because there was a time before Chrome was ever even a thing where – the Mozilla, where Firefox was my retreat away from Internet Explorer, and they bought themselves so much, uh, uh, so much buy-in capital with that from me personally. And as I continue, you know, th- there's so many things that the Mozilla Corporation does. That all of their meetings are open meetings. Anyone can attend a Mozilla meeting. You can, I think they have a phone number you can dial up, or they have an online web stream, and you can just listen to what the what what they're talking about, their tr- line of thinking, how they're thinking. I mean, they're a very transparent organization. Um, as opposed to Google, which is very much not a transparent organization. And so today, if we're saying that, you know, as the, as the, as Firefox becomes a technically competitive product against Chrome, then I think they really start to hold their own to be able to say, look, now we have the technical features, plus we have all right. of this really good community offering. Yeah. Well, not only that, Noah, but also it seems like if I'm in the enterprise, this is the horse I want to bet on if I'm oh, yeah. building internal applications that are dependent on a browser. Chrome right. is very is very is, – is, everything's built around Chrome now. Like you look at all these Electron apps, it's, they're really mm-hmm. all built around Chrome yeah. and Chromium. Yeah. But if I'm in the enterprise and I'm looking at building applications around a browser, I would, at this point, I would be much more inclined to go with Mozilla's product simply because what the foundation's purpose is. Don't mm-hmm. you think, like... Uh, you can trust. You have a lot more trust, and just that they won't suddenly change what they're doing. You have access to the exactly. more of the secret sauce if you need it. Yeah, exactly. So I'm not hearing much from, from Rika. I know, Rika, you're a really strong Chrome user, a real strong proponent of Chrome. Yeah. What do you think about this? No, I'm not going to change. <laughs> okay, that's fair. There's, there's, there's no real reason for me to do so. I like Chrome, and mm-hmm. a lot of the extensions that I use on Chrome aren't available on Firefox. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, I think there's a couple people in that boat. Yeah. I definitely I, heard some people just around the office chatting about it who I wouldn't say are that interested in browsers. I mean, they are technical people, but I was I was kind of surprised. I will say for my own usage as well that uh, I already use Firefox and Chrome. Uh, you know, I have a, I use Google Apps, etc. But I think Firefox is going to be even more of a part of my life, and there'll be some systems where I probably will just drop Chrome altogether. Same, yeah. Popey, I don't know if you're willing to talk about this on the air, but you have a, a very interesting workflow that. Firefox is not currently capable of <laughs> mimicking. Is that something you'd be willing to talk about? Well, yeah. So I use Chrome all day, every day, and I use lots and lots of uh, separate profiles, separate users in Chrome. And I like the way that Chrome lets me click a button, switch to another user, and I'll have an, a completely separate browser window with multiple tabs, everything saved for that user, um, which has a separate Gmail account. Everything is completely separate cookies. And 
whilst Firefox, I am told, can do this. And every time I try this, there are various extensions and ways and command line options that let you do this. Mm-hmm. It's never as smooth as it is in Chrome. And and I what I want is a browser which is my work window to the world and a browser which is my personal window to the world. And then another yep. 10 for all my other online personalities that I have. And and yep. Firefox just can't do that, and Chrome does. And well, what's that would be what accounts, would hold dude. me back as well. <laughs> well, and what's funny is, uh, you know, so aside from the puppet account thing, uh, what's interesting about that is I think you are willing to push the envelope a lot further than the average user, even the average technical user, is going to do. Because I can tell you, I'm a fairly technical person. There is no way in this earth I'm going to sit there and open up terminals to start launching my web browser just to get, right. you know, it's just not practical for me. Uh, and I think there's a lot of people. So I think if if you aren't able to fit that into your your workflow i think anyone else that has that similar you know concept of they want to have online personas um and i think a lot of people do i think those people are hosed at least if they're going to try i think i'm just as lazy as the next guy and i and i want (laughs) i want an easy way to separate one bunch of work from another set of work i want on a on a friday night when it's five o'clock i want to be able to close a an entire window and all of my work disappears Right. So I can say I don't have to. I don't have to worry about email notifications or tabs that have documents in that are related to my work. I can just forget those as soon as I close that tab. Now I realize I'm a bit of a special snowflake because my my work machine is my personal machine. Yeah, and I know that's not the same as use cases. Most people have a work machine and a personal machine I, at home. I, I would say that that landscape is changing. I would say that the vast there's a lot of people that are working from home and i think a lot of those people are going to wind up with some of the with some of the same challenges and desires that you have and i'll tell you what's interesting about working from home because i do it this the, the too it's it it becomes so important to be able to distinguish this is home and this i'm spending personal time and i am doing working time mm-hmm. and the, and when you're working from home the best way to do that if you can is to have separate machines but the problem with having separate machines is oftentimes they are expensive and so one of the advents that has come along in the past couple of years that has really opened us up to be able to play with things especially those of us that that are doing things from home and are trying to do simultaneous different projects is obviously the arm architecture. And up until recently, I have had this issue where I, I'm deploying Red Hat all day long, and I'm deploying CentOS all day long on all these servers. And then I get home and I'm like, and this just happened just a couple months ago, we were testing an EMR for a, a clinic. And they said, can you set it up and just show us kind of how it would work? I said, sure. So I'm kind of setting everything up and kind of got everything set up on a Raspberry Pi because they're cheap and they work. The problem was when we went to actually put it into production, we had to end up exporting out all of these, you know, SQL template stuff because I couldn't just move everything over because it was it was the ARM port of it. It wasn't the it wasn't the, it wasn't binarily compatible uh, with the x86 processor that that they were going to use in production. Um, and and so what Red Hat has announced today blew me away because it's going to, in a large way, change a lot of that. Um, and this is from Red Hat themselves. Red Hat has announced Enterprise Linux for ARM. Uh, so the article goes on to say, today marks a milestone for Red Hat Enterprise Linux with the addition of a new architecture on our list that fully supports platforms. Red Hat Enterprise Linux for ARM is a part of our multi-architect strategy, the culmination of a multi-year collaboration with upstream community and our silicon and hardware parties. Um, and so the article goes on to talk about how Red Hat basically took this pragmatic approach to ARM servers. And I remember, and Chris and I were talking about this earlier today, 
Linus said that uh, a couple years ago that one of the things that excited him about ARM was he believed it was a true competitor to Intel in a way that he hadn't seen since back in the old uh, back in the old Mac days when they were on a different architecture altogether. <laughs> and 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 now we have a true competitor to Intel. And and at the time I was kind of skeptical of that. I was like, are you kidding? Because the ARM like basically at the time was like the thing that was running inside of cell phones. It couldn't do anything serious. And then year after year, I've watched these things literally double in power until just last year. I think we were doing uh, our, uh, for last, we were doing our review of the latest Ubuntu Mate. And lo and behold, I was installing the same operating system on my Raspberry Pi for $35 Amazon prime available that I was installing inside of my studio. And it's just, it's just this mind warp that I just couldn't get over. And I know, Chris, yeah. you, you yeah. as a person in the studio, I mean, how many different computers are you sitting in front of? You can put your hand on probably eight of them right now. <laughs> you know, the, the thing that I think you touched on there that really is just un... It's just it's an impossible force for Intel to deal with is because ARM processors are in all of these routers and all of these little tiny devices and all of these lady tubes and obviously in all of these Wait. phones... Yeah, they're lady tubes. No, I know. I just, just I think of something else until I figure out what we're talking about. This is my Sorry. safe way of not triggering them because people that are listening to the podcast, they get oh, really frustrated yes. when you trigger their lady tubes. So I right. just refer to it. Plus, it's it can be the Google. It could be the... it could be the. There's all kinds of annoying people in tubes these days. And there's a lot of annoying lady tubes. So, in fact, they're all kind of annoying in their own unique way. Oh, yeah. Really. And the thing is, is, all of them have ARM processors. Every damn cell phone, though. That's really mm-hmm. the thing, right? Yes. Every cell phone has the ARM processor in it. And this has caused a momentum of investment and year-over-year improvement in a platform that Intel and AMD just can't simply sustain on the x86 side. They just can't compete with that. Now, they're so far ahead that it hasn't really mattered, but the thing about these ARM CPUs is, damn if they don't work great together. Because you, right. you can use modern operating systems to sort of carve out a few of these cores. And so you have companies like Cray and Qualcomm that are launching 48-core systems. Oh, boy. 48-core ARM systems. And they don't, car- they don't, they don't even – I mean – no, you and I were chatting about this earlier. Mm-hmm. They don't. They don't really cost that much. No, they start out uh, at lowest price I found, and this isn't for the forty-eight core. I think this is thirty-something cores, twenty-something uh, cores, thirty-something cores. But uh, they start at nine hundred bucks, and then for the forty-eight core version, you're looking at like just under two k. But you know, if you core is two k. But if you compare that to what you would what you would pay for just just a, just a quad core Xeon, uh, you know, that's that's half the price of what I pay for some of the servers that that we we have that have four cores in it. So the the amount of computing power that you're getting per dollar and then you know we haven't even talked about the energy because the the power consumption of these arm devices is just a fraction of what they are on intel or you know or amd um and so the, and and then by then by proxy then or by translation uh the heat that is output by a lot of these arm devices is a right. fraction uh That's and so a big thing and Which then the fans are quieter AC, right? right yeah it, it means it, well it means less cost for the data center to run cooling and while these Per core, I, I think Beard was probably about to say this. While these per core don't compete with an Intel or an right. AMD chip, yet the the thing is, is you can you can build core specific jobs. So you can slice off twenty or twenty four or whatever cores for this particular application that you've custom written for this job. Well, I can also think of like any number of servers I run and or have that. They're, it's not like they're at their peak performance all the time. A lot of times True. they're just sitting there. And if you could just have a, especially if maybe you're running some sort of 
Maybe you're running a chat server or something else that has a high degree of parallelism, but doesn't actually do that much. It's mostly just sending keep lives between the million clients connected to it. These seem like great fits for anything like that. Yeah. Now, mm-hmm. can I just say all of this aside, and and much congratulations to the Red Hat folks for getting uh, full Red Hat enterprise support behind this platform, which is, I think, a huge milestone for the industry in general. Uh I also, part of me has to say, welcome to the party, by the way. Yeah. A lot of us have been here yeah. for quite a while now, especially yeah. those that are Debian-based or Ubuntu-based. And then you look at some projects like that Canonical has, that, uh, like um, specifically some of the like long-term investments that some projects have made into working on ARM platforms, into, into really solid upgrades on those platforms and delivering software. It, I mean, it's good that they're here, but uh, I kind of wonder what took them so long at the same time. If uh, actually, actually, I wouldn't mind commenting on that. Actually, um, yeah, sure. Go ahead, Chris. Go ahead, Christian. Yeah. Uh, so, so uh, as you know, Red Hat, um, the business model of Red Hat, right, is that you sell a, as called the standards operating system uh, that you traditionally have installed on x86 systems. And I think for anyone who worked with ARM in the past, right, it's uh, historically been you know highly custom platforms where you basically like you get some sort of uh, Linux version from usually the hardware vendor. And it's a lot of manual tweaking to get it running and maintain it, and then you ship your device, right, with, with this Linux version. And, 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 of course, when you need to do an update, it, it's usually a bit painful. So, so when Red Hat decided to, to enter this market, one thing that we've spent a lot of time doing was actually working to ensure that there's a standardized platform we deploy towards. So, oh. so, 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 I mean, like the fact that this uh, ARM service will be using UEFI, uh, that's partially because we said, you know, we need a standard way to boot the systems. So we don't want to you know, deal with Hmm. Ten different bootloaders on ten different so, platforms. Christian, if it would it be an accurate statement? Would it be an accurate statement then to say that some of the delay was Red Hat dragging the industry towards some standards? Yeah, I mean, I was working with you know Linaro and, and the industry partners to say that okay, you know, we, we are happy to put Red Hat's name uh, as an enterprise hardware software vendor behind this, but we also need you to then step up the plate and say that hey, we're going to have a standards platform that you can install a standard operating system on. You don't need to have a bespoke operating system to install it because. Hmm. I mean, Red Hat is not, I mean, uh, I don't know if I don't even say this, but Red Hat doesn't really have an interest in going into, you know, the bespoke OS market. Um, you know, that it's interesting because that, that seems to align with what my perception of Red Hat, and, and, and a lot of times, if I'm being honest, is a lot of times what is what pushes Red Hat to the top of the list anytime I'm sitting in front of a university board, you know, or or, or what have you, is that if, if something is put out by Red Hat um, – I know that it's mature technology, and I I know there's there's an argument to be had here about System D, but but for the most part, when when Red Hat puts something forward, you're, they're usually one of the later adopters. They're not one of the you know the the cutting edge pioneers, at least not on Red Hat Enterprise. Uh, so what you're describing seems to fit with what my perception has been, and again, that's just I'm just some guy talking about you know my experience, but that's what I have seen. Mumble Room, who else in here is is interested in who would deploy uh, Red Hat Enterprise, an enterprise operating system on an ARM architecture? Does this change anything for you? Or is this something that you say, well, like Chris said, you know, Debian's had it for a while. Canonical's had it for a while. So this is it's really nothing new. This really doesn't give us a tool we didn't have in the toolbox. Anyone? The problem, the problem is probably that people are not using ARM architecture on business level right now. But that might change soon. Mm. I think so. I think it's, I, I think it is going to change soon. I don't think it's – I mean, everybody's been predicting this over and over again. But you now have Cray. You have Qualcomm. I mean, you have a lot of big players that are saying, 
We're not replacing x86, but if you have an application-specific task for us, uh, we're ready to go. It also seems like it might lower that entry, right? Because, like, well, we weren't even considering it before, but suddenly if we can run the same OS, we can use very similar image versions from the people who maintain that. Yeah. No, like, we have a bunch of Raspberry Pis that run TVs in my office. Right. We already had that option. If if, you, if we were a rel shop, now that would, that would be great. Right. And so that that's actually what I was about to say was I, I respectfully disagree that, that ARM doesn't have a strong foothold uh, and, and a wide foothold inside of an enterprise audience. I think where that where it best fits, though, is in a lot of uh, you know appliance type applications um, but 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 in that same way and kind of what you were touching on Wes is in that same way a, a lot of these a lot of these platform systems if you have software stacks and you have you know management systems for us that was really big our our, our um, remote management system to log into systems and pull statistics and all of that when they came out with an arm port that was huge for us because we could then enroll all of those arm systems that we had even if they're just appliances into that central management system um, and so I would imagine that there are tons of businesses out there like you said they're either rail shops or they have custom software that runs on rel and they can say now we had these kind of one-off appliances that were out here that were on arm if we switched operating systems we could then have all of those standardized and i I think that's hugely beneficial to businesses yeah i just want to know when i can build my arm pc you know as a long time Mm. x86 user all i really care about is that i can build my own pc system because that's just cool and when i can start building my own arm systems then i'll care that's really for me. That's it. Yeah, and I think to us. I mean, if you're you know if you're happy with a Raspberry Pi, you can do that today. There yeah, also yeah. are there are more robust ARM architectures out there. In fact, some of the I think some of the, the some of the best representation we have for that is from the Arch ARM group, and those guys. And I see them all the time at different uh, Linux events and stuff. And they have a whole table full of you know because we when I think of ARM and when you think of ARM, most people we think of these thirty five dollar Raspberry Pis, but they have like four and five hundred dollar computers that are ARM computers that you can install that are designed uh, you know with with tighter tolerances because at the end of the day the Raspberry Pi was never designed to be a general purpose computer it was designed to be a teaching tool turns out it's such a great teaching tool and was built so well and designed so uh, you know above what they targeted to do that you can use it as a general purpose computer and for eighty percent of people. It works just fine, uh, but it does, you know, and I've tried to put it in some critical applications and I've gotten bit. Um, and so there are other devices out there and I, I wish I could tell you what they are. I, I don't know. Um, I tell you what I do know. Kernel 4.14 was released. OMG oh. Ubuntu came out with an article today, said Kernel 4.14 features a large number of new feature changes and is set to become the next long-term LTS release backed for for several years by ongoing maintenance and support. Yeah. Um, Things that they, they have a whole list of uh, things that they have added, and those are in the show notes. But things that stood out to me that I think are particularly interesting, the Asus T100 touchpad support. Now, if you don't know what the Asus T100 is, it is a small laptop, uh, UMPC, not quite UMPC, more like um, uh, like uh, a netbook size PC. They sell for about $150 to $200. You can pick them up at you know any Best Buy, Target has them, that kind of thing. And it had the computer and the display is all in one. So it's kind of a tablet style, but the keyboard can be attached or maybe it flips around. I'm not exactly sure. Um, but it is one of the most cost-effective, well-built little netbook computers out there. And Linux was originally very problematic on it. When they, when they first came out, we tried to put Linux on one and we couldn't get Wi-Fi to work, couldn't get Bluetooth to work. The touchpad didn't work. Sound didn't work. So basically you had a display and a keyboard and that was it. And that was still such a good deal that I re- would run into people. In fact, I ran into somebody at LinuxCon, I think last year, and he had like this con- 
just concoction of USB dongles to get all of the connectivity and devices working. And um, with kernel 4.14, the last of those devices is now supported. That's the touchpad. Um, so I thought that was pretty cool. Um, but yeah, better support for Ryzen processors. Um, if I can make a quick <coughs> plug, next week on the Ask Noah show, Monday, 6 p.m. Central, we're going to have Wendell Wilson from Level 1 Techs. And Wendell is just a – he's a really great guy. Uh, and he's been doing some really cool things with Ryzen and uh, and Threadripper, uh, doing PCI pass-through and, and so that he can run Linux on his bare metal. And but yet he can still take advantage of all of the software that Windows has to offer. And he has some really interesting theories about how none of us are we're all going to be using Linux in just a couple of years. Uh, uh, I think I think he backs it up pretty well. So so make sure to tune in for that. But um, cool. but better Ryzen support for Linux means that that is all the more realistic. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I as somebody who has almost exclusively either Intel or NVIDIA hardware, I got to admit, it's looking really good for AMD GPU users mm-hmm. these days. But, you know, no, I got to say, I think the big thing about 4.14... Don't say ButterFS. Don't say ButterFS. Nope. No, it's just okay. the fact that it, this is the new LTS kernel that's going to be yeah. around for like six yeah. years. Mm-hmm. And if, if we start getting this in these here uh, Android devices, we might actually have ourselves like a sustainable, patchable, manageable... Linux kernel that's used by millions of devices. Like, this could be a really, really good thing for Android, uh, let alone all the other distributions. But just Android alone, this could be a huge thing if if OEMs and, and Google start shipping this kernel at some point. Absolutely. Mumble Room, what do you guys think? Who's super excited about the new kernel release? Oh! Well, I mean, there's ButterFS. Produce Michael comes in with the butter. Well, yeah, what are you super excited there about there, Rotten? What are you... <laughs> You liar. New, new compression support for ButterFS. Yeah, that's, what the, that's what the feature set is, just so that you can continue to... Uh, to it it did also improve their SSD uh, allocation okay. algorithms and other oh, things. Oh, really? Which, which I will say, like, we're all pretty down about ButterFS, especially for large storage, but I think maybe OS volumes on SSDs is one yeah. of the places it does see some yeah. use. Yeah. So I wouldn't so, put uh, ButterFS on anything. The, the one that actually stood out to me is uh, HDMI CEC support for the Raspberry Pi. No kidding. Yeah, believe, yeah let's talk about wow. that. Which I believe is the thing that lets uh, the Raspberry Pi yeah. able to remotely mm-hmm. turn on displays. Like here in the studio, uh, the NVIDIA Shield TV supports HDMI C. So when you wake up the Shield, it automatically turns on the TV without yeah. you having to grab the TV remote. So it, it kind of solves like the universal remote problem by just not needing it. And My they added own. support for more Raspberry Pis as well. My understanding, too, and somebody correct me if I'm wrong on this, but CEC allows you to not only just turn the device on, but also acknowledge which is the active input. So you can set CEC. So if I have four different devices that are plugged into a TV, when a device starts seeing activity, it will switch the input to that particular device and power the TV on. Am I I right about that? Yes. Yeah. 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 It's great. I mean, it works here in the studio with the Android TV devices, so it makes sense that you'd want this on a Raspberry Pi because you could put this but on a Cody appliance. I think appliance. that worked with previous kernels because I have Auto Arm here on a Raspberry Pi 3, and if I launch it, my TV launches too. Yeah, well, so, okay, so there are two things. There's HDMI CEC, which is what Rikai is talking about, and that's where the Raspberry Pi is actually talking. It's, it's talking via data over the HDMI cable. There yeah, is, that worked out of the box. Well, so, but just so we're clear... A lot of TVs just support if there is an active HDMI signal, just turn on the TV. That's that's and my bed, my Western Digital's uh, TV, which rest their soul, they're great devices, even though I'm not using them anymore. 
those devices didn't support HDMI CEC, but still, when I powered the device on, my TV would come on. And that was just because the TV had a feature of if I see an HDMI signal, just power myself up. Uh, so there, there is a different – just because the, the TV came on doesn't necessarily mean it was doing CEC, but it could have existed in no, a no, feature. I, I don't have know. a Sony – I have a Sony Bravia here, so all I had to do, I have to, I had to install libcec. Now it's introduced in the kernel, but I just had to add libcec, install it, and then it worked out of the box. Well, okay, all right. I well, mean, if, I if you had to add the lib, then it's not out of the box. <laughs> well, but yeah, wow. Okay, okay. I agree. You know, we gotta kill. That. No, no, I don't. Don't feel bad. We gotta kill the term out of the box. Because when's the last time anybody installed Linux from a box? Give me a break. We gotta kill that. Well, yeah, Chris, it's this giant, nice, big uh, monolithic kernel. I, yeah. I would buy one just for the novelty. Oh, Have it on the shelf. Yeah, So funny, dude. funny story, guys. Red Hat Seven. Uh, shipped with a boxed version of what? Red Hat 7. Yeah, as a promotional wow. item. You could awesome. buy a boxed version of Red Hat 7 and they would deliver it in a box to your house and you could open it up and there were like, I don't know what they put inside. I hope it was an optical disc because I wouldn't know what to do with it in a server these days. We don't have optical drives anymore. <laughs> in in uh, storage somewhere, I have a nice CD case with Red Hat Linux 5. Yeah. Do you yeah, really? Nice. Yeah. yeah. I collect all the versions of Red Hat. I bought every single version of Seuss and Mandrake that came out. I got the free CDs from Ubuntu as long as I could. I was all about it as long as I could because there's there was there was a celebratory fact or just like I have this I have this physical thing. And one of the things I one of the things that made me use SUSE early on was this beautiful, gorgeous, detailed updated manual for every single release it was a book it wasn't a pamphlet susa had a book and i would read through that and i could feel the texture of the paper and it would have screenshots and it just it was so awesome that this linux thing had this really physical book and i would still do it. I'd, I'd buy it for ubuntu 16.04 i'd do solace i any you know i really would because not only is it a nice way to contribute but uh it's there's just but what i would want now is i'd want a branded usb drive like like uh, Martin there knows uh, about a he seems to he seems to have found somebody who can make a very nice oh. looking Ubuntu Mate thumb drive. Maybe people should talk to to Wimpy about that because damn that thing's hot looking. It's a nice metal thumb drive, and you could put that in like a packet with like a book or a pamphlet about it. Like all, I I'd, I'd spend sixty five dollars for something like that if as long as like a good percentage of it went to the project. You know that's yeah that's that's interesting. That might be a, a funding source or a funding a revenue source for them. You know, I, I th- and I like I said, I think Red Hat did it kind of as a promo thing. So hopefully we don't, you know, find out if that actually worked out. You know, it's interesting. So when you got that book, did you go through and like read it? Like, was there was there mm, useful information in there? I, really? I would say I skimmed it. I skimmed it. It was more about uh, converting something that was this hobbyist, crazy ass, nearly hippie ideal to a physical good that came in a box yeah. with like six discs and a book. It was more about like that like reality of this thing that I had. So I never had the Seuss, but I had the Red Hat thing. And the Red Hat, I don't know if anyone out there remembers this, but Red Hat used to come with a little pamphlet and it gave you like this quick start, like this is Linux and it's a different operating system that you might not be familiar with. And here's kind of the the basic how-to kind of getting started thing. And one of the things that, you know, the, the thing I guess that really kind of drew me to it was at, when I sat down in Linux for the first time pulling these things out of the box, I had no idea what I was doing. And so every little tiny hint that I could get, including those little pamphlets, 
you know, that was that was a big help to me. Of course, today, if I was doing that, I would head over to Linux Academy slash unplugged because Linux Academy is going to do the, that same thing where you're going to have the ability to just visit a website and get a tutor that and these people, these people care about Linux. These people understand Linux. They know Linux. And you can tell if you've ever taken a bad online computer course, a video course, you can hear the instructor kind of like reading through his notes or they'll have bad takes or something. And you can tell when you're sitting down and I did the, uh, the Red Hat seven one, I think most recently, uh, rather than actually paying for the Red Hat course. And I didn't find myself lost at all. And I could tell as the instructor kind of went off on, on little real hand stories. Well, when I was working for this client or when I was doing this, we found this to be most useful. And, and this is why I'm super excited about this being in Red Hat seven. You can hear that personal commentary. That's stuff that you just don't get with somebody who's just a, a paid voice to to read or or to to explain something, right? So Linux Academy slash Unplugged, they've worked out a really great discount for you, so you can get started cheaper than ever and get started on your uh, you know on your next Linux career. We get emails all the time at, at both at the Ask Noah Show, and I'm sure you get them here on Unplugged, Chris. But people are saying, hey. You started my career. You jumpstart my career. In fact, is Eric still in the uh, chat room with us? Eric, uh, Eric H. Maybe not. Uh, Eric, I think I think he had yeah. to go sm- smoke him the crack pipe. Er, yeah, maybe. Eric H was he was telling me just the other day. He was like, you know what, you and you and Jupiter Broadcasting, and thanks to companies like Linux Academy, you got my new career started. I started because of what you guys were were doing on the network, and for what things like your sponsors, like uh, like Linux Academy have done for me and it, and it launched his it launched his entire career and now he's on a completely yeah. different path and and i think that's just really great because we spend the majority of our lives our working years so you want to be doing something you love so head over to linuxacademy.com slash unplugged and make sure to take advantage of that discount sorry go yeah, ahead Chris. I, mean, I was just gonna say you know the thing about linux academy too that i really love about it as a linux geek is they they pass the sniff test because when you start using it you go oh yeah these guys are oh, Linux definitely. geeks. They're geeks. They love Linux. And that's when you that's when it clicks. That's when it clicks. So apparently <laughs> I'm talking about Linux Academy like it's something that everyone knows. They they have a website. It's Linux uh, Linuxacademy.com slash unplugged. Apparently there's there's a URL that you have to go to to actually oh, yeah. get there. Oh yeah. Well then you get the free seven day trial, so that's that's useful. Yeah. Oh, Linuxacademy.com slash unplugged. There you go. All right, so uh, is it is it uh, is it Chris or Rikai? Who, oh, oh no 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 no! I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I, I jumped ahead. So one of a, a new software, a <laughs> new software you. release. This yeah, I know. I know. I know. I know. But I didn't. I didn't see that until I scrolled down a little bit. Um, new software version of OpenShot two point four is released, and I tell you what. I, I played with it for just – I didn't have a lot of time to play with it. When I, when I saw it, I, was, I saw it just for researching the show, and I, I downloaded it, and I was just playing with it a little bit. Man, are they making some progress. OpenShot, even if – and I'll be the first one to admit – even if OpenShot is not the video editor that I could use today to do the things that I need to get done, even if that's not for me today – uh, OpenShot is definitely the nonlinear video editor on Linux that I want to succeed long term. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if that Boy, makes that, sense. Yeah, no, it does. <laughs> That's the nicest possible way to say it. And I would like Jonathan to get a hold of me, and I would like to have a conversation with him because I can honestly tell just by looking at the screenshots that this is never going to work for Jupiter Broadcasting. This is never going to yep. work for me. Yep. Um, and you know, if you look at the Linux Gamecast, I think there's a very specific reason that they're on a much older version of this program mm-hmm. than this current one. And I completely support somebody working their ass off on an open source project, and I completely want somebody to build something for Linux that does this. But 
Jesus, if 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 the if it's not going to be completely irrelevant by the time he gets anywhere where this thing is usable, pipe wire is now just a, a couple of years away to be completely feature complete, and this thing's going to have to be completely rewritten to use any of that. And the UI is fundamentally impossible for anything that's more than just a couple of tracks of editing. So, which means if it's anybody that's trying to edit anything more than their Thanksgiving dinner, it's never going to work for anybody. Hey, that was a really nice dinner. Yeah, right. That's all it's good for. And I totally respect Jonathan. I totally respect the OpenShot project. I have used past versions of OpenShot, which are really great. This, unfortunately, is like skating to where the puck was about six years ago. And I really I really am disappointed to say that as somebody who actually backed this project when he did mm-hmm. it on Kickstarter. I was a backer of this. It, Super yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, you, you have to be realistic. Uh, you know, I will say they have they have done some they have done some cool things. Um, improved playback. Um, one of the things that Linux has struggled yeah. with is both 4K and video that is above 30 frames per second. So this has uh, smooth playback for 50, 50 frames per second, 60 frames per second, and 120 yeah. frames per second. Um, yeah. So they are making progress. And I'll tell mm-hmm. you where OpenShot really fits in is if you just need to clip some video files up. If you just need to drop a video file in and clip off the beginning, clip off the end or uh, you know make a clip mashup or something like that if you want a really easy simple video editor to 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 do that i think openshot fits the bill there but i echo 100% your sentiment i think when you start getting into any even remotely complicated workflow um you're just you're going to be struggling. I mean, Caden Live is 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 a is a great, fantastic open source editor that I think mm. is light years ahead of Open OpenShot. I agree. Caden Live is a is a is a much better candidate for this particular type of work. And then when you need to go beyond that, Lightworks it it's a bit of a learning curve, but it is mm-hmm. absolutely a capable editor, and that's available for Linux as well. And so it's getting you have you have. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Oh, go, yeah, talk, yeah right. talk about oh. that. Is it, Rotten, are you using DaVinci Resolve? Uh, I have used it. I don't use it typically because I don't like the way they distribute it. But overall, it's uh, it's it's still it's definitely a good editor, and I wish they would make a more reasonable distribution method. Well, what are you uh, using for Tux Digital? Um, Kaden Live, basically. Okay, much always Kaden Live. I yeah. use Lightworks occasionally too, but it's almost always Kaden Live. But I just wanted to say, like, I, I think OpenShot's more in the iMovie realm. Yeah, I would agree. I would agree. It's it's one of those things that you can you can pick yeah. up and just throw something together yeah. real quick. I'm curious, yeah. what do you find egregious about the distribution for DaVinci Resolve? Uh, they have a it's a binary that you have to run a, a rooted uh, sh file to install it. So mm. like it's yeah, it's, yeah, okay. it's not a, any kind of format of of it's it's a it uses this thing called make sh make sh hmm. and it's just like it's a weird. Uh, binary compiled bash script essentially you should it's, introduce, it's, it's, you, you, should and introduce you have to root and you can't see what the script is doing and you have to root give it root access as a script oh. and then you and it's and it's so weird because you can't like unpackage it or anything <laughs> so it's like uh if if anything at least do an app image like do something that's reasonable yeah even openshot does an app image yeah. 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 Well, anyway, I, I think I, so you know, part of that, I think, is there's a discussion to be had on, you know, how software manufacturers are supposed to target distributions, because when they go to make an installable file, it's like, well, which distribution are we installing for? So, I mean, I, I think there's a discussion to be had there. And I think that snaps and Flatpak and stuff are going to go a long way to fix that. Um, so, uh, Chris, tell me about this Gnome Shell 4 proposal. 
This is really interesting because it's um, it's it's gotten a lot of immediate reaction today on on the internet, and some of the reaction has been, "Are you kidding me? You've just gotten GNOME basically stable, and now you want to reinvent the wheel with GNOME 4. And then the other other end of the spectrum has been, "Finally, what the hell is taking you guys so long to address some of these fundamental issues?" So we have two links in the show notes: one's to a Pharonix article that summarizes it really well, and then one is to the actual wiki post by the GNOME project that gives. A a lot of detail. But essentially, you have GNOME 3 Shell today, which is doing great, right? Everybody's uh, loving it. Uh, it's getting deployed in all the places. But it's built around X11. It's built around the era of X11. And with GNOME Shell 4, they want to build it around Wayland, a Wayland first design, as the project puts it. And the whole idea is to do away with X11 slash Xorg support entirely. Their words, not mine. The new GNOME shell would be better fitted for low-latency input forwarding, low-latency visual input event feedback, who doesn't love that, and low-latency zero-copy client forwarding. Those all sound good because they have the word low-latency in front of them. I mean, I like low-latency. <laughs> you hate latency. <laughs> I kind of like zero-copy. I don't know what that means, but I like it. <laughs> it's good because it's like you can copy without having to copy on the back end and then forward back to the client. It's good, Rikai. It's good. Basically, um, synergy. Yeah, it is. And um, that's so, – so that's the, the – the Wayland first is what's getting the headlines. But what I think is more interesting about this story and you, you learn more when you read the actual wiki post is the GNOME project is facing a couple of really, really hard choices. Uh, three, I think, to be exact. And they identify, they identify a few core problem areas. The number one problem um, that need new solutions – and man, if I don't agree with every single one of these. Uh, number one, low latency input forwarding is a problem that they need new solutions for. Number two, low latency visual input event feedback. Like specifically to put that back in user terms, they mean cursor movement feedback. You move the cursor, it should be glued exactly to your mouse movement. Exactly. You you move that mouse a millimeter, it should represent that exactly. It should be glued together. Low latency and zero cl- client copy forwarding. Uh, also, input methods in the shell, and um, this is the number one thing that they put as number five on their list, but for me, this is number one. Stalls on the main thread and stalls on the compositor for frame redraws. Now, that one line item is a really, really big deal because it means breaking GNOME up into um, a bunch of different processes where you don't just rely on one primary renderer, which is what always ends up being the fundamental criticism of GNOME. <clears throat> now, they have a few different uh, potential solutions for this that they've outlined on their wiki. And some of these are radical. Um, option A is pretty big, and it's the closest to, the I would say, the Plasma desktop setup. It's uh, a UI process and a compositor process, which is exactly how the Plasma desktop does it today. Um, there's also a few other like less dramatic options that they have available to them that they're considering. Another option potentially being less drastic uh, but would only solve three out of the five problems I just listed is to introduce a proxy display server. Yeah, a proxy display server would be somewhat similar to an X server. And then they would essentially have GNOME talk to that and then that proxy would talk to Wayland. You know, kind of like Mir. Um, but let's not bring that up. And then uh, they have pros and cons outlined for all of that. And what it left me with is 
This is what I was talking about earlier in the year on this show is the transition to Wayland. And we've all been like, let's get Wayland going. Let's get Wayland <laughs> by default. Let's get Wayland working on NVIDIA. Let's get Wayland working on Intel. The thing is, is once you get to Wayland, there is so much more work for these desktop projects. And they, in some cases, are going to have to reinvent some of the core aspects of the desktop. And in the case of Gnome Shell 4... It would break, most likely, and, and the project's the one saying this, not me, GNOME Shell 3 extensions. So all the extensions that you are currently using to make your GNOME 3 shell usable would likely break with GNOME Shell 4. Now, I'm not saying that's going to be the end of the world. I'm not saying there's not going to be an easy transition or maybe a new standardized stable API out of this. It could, all, it could end up in something much stable better. API. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know, right? Yeah. But but it could end up in something that's better than what we have now. But in the immediate short term, your doc, your crazy hack to do XYZ could break. You know, for me, it'd be my Bitcoin widget, I'm sure, because they like to break that a lot. And so Gnome Shell 4 is now on the horizon. And it's, it is just one of the millions of dominoes that are going to fall in this transition to Wayland. Yeah, I it so it, it's going to be interesting to watch. But um, I kind of resonate with what you were talking about earlier when you said, uh, "Why not? Uh, why not start working with you know Canonical and Mir to do a lot of these things that they're trying to reinvent the wheel on?" Well, you know, <laughs> and you know, and, Mir's got a lot of a lot of um, you know, we call this thing called drama. I don't know if what you guys call it over in Grand Forks, but, but here the, on the West Coast, we call so, it drama. Well, here's and here's well, here's the other drama. If if we're talking about drama, then what kind of message does that send from the gnome community up to Canonical, which have basically just banked their business on this uh, on on this desktop? And I wouldn't this community. say bank the business. I well, wouldn't say that. At least the desktop part of it. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. That's a yeah, good question. Their desktop, they don't, they don't seem to actually have, like, they, they care about it, but business-wise, they don't care about it. Well, I wouldn't um, say that either. I don't know about I that. I wouldn't. The desktop know, part, because you can say, like, the server implementation doesn't really matter if Gnome's there or not. Uh, the IoT stuff doesn't matter if Gnome's there or not. Yeah, but so here's the thing. Here's the thing, Rotten, is if, if I'm Dell or I'm HP or I'm anybody that's going to pre-configure and ship a, a canonical-derived uh, desktop... I feel better right now that they're using GNOME because um, I look at business risk and I evaluate other companies. And compared to me, Canonical is a small shop that is struggling to make it by. And I'm super rich. I'm worldwide. I want to ship my products to millions of customers. And uh, I'm a little skeptical that they can pull all that shit off. And so the fact that they're now deferring that work to the community, the, the wider community, and a huge part of that development is backed by Red Hat. And that's no secret to anybody, anybody in the industry, you know, you look at these facts and you say, well, now we've just deferred our risk because now Canonical is not solely responsible for the development of the Ubuntu desktop. All of these companies are all in and they just have to do a great job of packaging up and make it work right. And that's all I need to ship it on my hardware. You know, and that's that's the hard, that's the hardware vendor's perspective. But then you have to look at the – and this is not an insignificant amount of dollars, not an insignificant amount of revenue and not an insignificant amount of the Ubuntu infrastructure. Look at companies. Companies like Amazon and Google. And I'm not talking about Amazon servers. I'm not talking about Google servers. I'm talking about the workstations that sit in front of the human beings that use them. Those machines are running Ubuntu on the desktop. Amazon has, and I've talked to a number of different Amazon
Amazon employees. One of them is a good friend of mine. He's been on he's been on on this show and on on Ask Noah Sean, uh, and and he's one of the guys that works in the the IT department for Amazon and. It, Ubuntu is by far the dominant operating system, desktop dominant operating system on their computers. And very much the same thing if you talk to a Google employee. They have a lot of Chromebooks. They have some people using MacBooks. And really, the common denominator for Google, obviously, is going to be Chrome. And they've tooled Chrome to do all the things they need it to do. Yeah. But the actual workstation that does the calculations, the actual thing that they're remoted into, the actual thing that's doing the thinking, that's a Linux Ubuntu desktop. I'll and give a brief, you know, because yeah. we've talked about it a lot recently on the show here. But uh, for us, I was looking at different options for the studio because we were having uh, a different array of de- technical problems mm-hmm. that essentially came down to running multiple Linux distributions. I mean, not to yeah. not to no. make, but that's what it kind of yeah. came down to. Yeah, yeah. And so we, if we just standardized on one thing. And I emphasize that by hitting my mic. If we just standardize on one thing, <laughs> then we would kind of like have one common thing to work towards. And so after after a bunch of testing, which I've talked about a ton on the show, we landed on Ubuntu 16.04 for the production OS. Yep. Now, um, the reason – one of the things that did factor into that is there isn't multiple versions for me to figure out. There's one Ubuntu – LTS that gets five years. I don't. I don't have to go get yeah. like a CentOS version of Ubuntu, right. Or like some sort of rolling version that's supported by a open source subset of a corporate backed. It's just it's Ubuntu LTS. And yep. then later on, after I get it all set up, and I go, oh, guess what? This shit's actually working for me, and it hasn't cost me anything. I can I can then go choose to subscribe to Landscape or some other. Some one of their other subscription services, which then all of a sudden turns them into legitimate systems. Yep. That I'm yep. centralized manage. And I don't have to like play this mental game that feels like it's from the nineties, mm-hmm. deciding which version of Linux I need. Do I need the Red Hat corporate version where I subscribe to their service? Do I need CentOS, which is kinda like the same thing, but I support it myself? Do I want Tumbleweed? Do I want Leap? None of this crazy, stupid, abstracted different versions. I get Ubuntu sixteen oh four full stop. It's Ubuntu 16.04. It's the same one you can download for free. It's the same one I can download for free. It's the same one I can put on my personal laptop. It's the same one I can put up on a server, on a VPS. It is the same Ubuntu. And the systems that are important to me, I subscribe to Landscape and I get Ubuntu Advantage. And now all of a sudden, they're enterprise systems. And to me, that simplicity that felt like it was more kind of like a, like a, a basic straight approach mm-hmm. was what was the eventual like okay well you combine the commercial support you buy you combine the software support and you combine the selective commercial software like back support by canonical where i need it and it's great because i can have we can standardize 16 systems in the studio on 1604 and i can subscribe for support on six of them yeah, absolutely. And and I, I you know, the other thing is you are you are very involved in the community, so probably not much comes as a surprise to you, but there's there are a lot of companies that they just kind of they kind of just, you know, ad hoc trust that they want a company to to do the thinking for them and do all the planning and they deal with all the community minutia and just deliver them a product. And that is a valuable service and that is also a valuable selling point when I'm going to talk to people about you know, mm, switching to yeah. Linux, basically. Sure, sure. I bet it is. And and when I was uh, when I was working with a company where we were deploying lots of um, really critical Linux servers, it was it was it was no question 
to buy the $5,000 Red Hat Enterprise support. And I can't remember what we called it back then, but they had multiple grades. I don't know if they still do this. And one was like, you got like 10 years and you got like a hotline to call support. And that was what we bought. We bought that really super yeah, fancy yeah. one. You, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. And that wasn't even a big deal. Like, whatever. That's fine. That's just, it was just included as part of the purchase cost of a server. And so you spend $15,000 and about 3500 of that was the server license and support. And it was, it wasn't even a conversation. It wasn't a debate. It wasn't looking at the merits of it. It was you buy Red Hat and it's fine. But now when I'm running my own business, my own small business, it's a completely different perspective I have on it. And so I think that's why Red Hat can make billions of dollars still with this particular setup they have. And it doesn't and, – and Canonical can make a, a profitable revenue source with their setup because mm-hmm. they're, they're essentially appealing to a bit of the same market while at the same time super fulfilling different ends of the spectrum. Absolutely. Uh, anyone from the mumble room have any perspective to add before we move on? Uh, actually, I did. Uh, so in, in regards to the whole GNOME 4 thing, uh, you know, with them, uh, are, the question should be is, are they deprecating or are they reinventing? Because this sounds like a process that they've been working on for years, it sounds like, and have been building up to. It just sounds it's to me really like the, the media is just freaking out in the same way that the they media. freak out <laughs> with uh, Pop! OS and calling it a fork when they're just changing the theme around. Mm. No, they're, okay, one, Pop! OS is a fork. System76 said it is. Two, uh, the the GNOME thing it is, has been in process for a while, yes, but it, they also said that it would – GTK4 and GNOME4 would break – all compatibility GTA three. That's why GTA three is going to have a very very yep. long LTS. Yep, and and so, you ha- you also have to figure that uh, there's more and more LTS distros these days shipping it. Yeah, so they're going to have like they're not dep- they Yes, they are deprecating it, but they're going to wait a very long time before they deprecated it. Yeah, so yeah, and I want to double down on I want to double you should double down right on now. your point too. They have been they have been forecasting this for a very long time. It's not like this is a surprise. This is something that they've been talking about for a long time. Version four is called version four because it's meant to warn developers there's going to be some breakage here. Yeah, uh, they, they said do, that about uh, I think three years ago. They started saying that this will have breaks. Yeah, and to, to chime in a bit here, I mean, uh, that uh, wiki post was written by Jonas Odal, who's on my team, um, and who's been one of the main guys behind uh, a lot of our uh, port work to, to Wayland. So, I mean, at the moment, no code is written here. This is basically him saying, okay, you know, uh, I spent a lot of time helping now with the port of GNOME 3 to Wayland, and we still have things we plan to do there. Uh, but here's some of the problems I see, and I think here's maybe how we want to look at resolving them uh, in, in the long run. So, I mean... Uh, my recommendation to anyone would be that not don't hold your breath for Gnome Shell Four. It's not it's not <laughs> going to be hit tomorrow. This <laughs> is sort of a multi-year uh, thing. Hmm? So, Chris, tell me about uh, James Nugent. Yeah, so uh, this is a friend of the show, uh, a podcast they've put out over at advancedtechmedia.org. And they just did an interview with James Nugent, and James is a, is an interesting interesting fellow. He's across the pond over in I I'm gonna I'm gonna try to I'm gonna give an attempt. I feel like I can get this one, Bath, England. 
That'll do. Yeah, that's a first. Yeah. Chris got a pronunciation. Yeah, right. no, everyone yeah. give him a round go. of applause. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, uh, he works at uh, Joynet, which we talk about about on this network, especially the TechSnap program and in BSD now. Uh, they were recently acquired by Samsung Electronics, and they still are super active in the open source community. And he's a core contributor at HashiCorp and uh, Event Store. And he also produces the open source stream database with a built projections system. I don't know what that means, but I would almost listen just to find out. You almost got it, Chris. It's actually Joyant. Oh, I know. I know. I always get it wrong. <laughs> I've always got it wrong. Joyant. You're right. Yeah. You're someday. Right. Someday. Joynet. Joyant. This I, looks like a great podcast. Oh, yeah. man. Yeah. The, yeah. Fascinating so, interview. AdvancedTechMedia.org, and uh, it's put on by uh, Alexandra and Adam. And uh, they both came to our barbecue meetup yeah. that we had a little bit ago. So I thought we should give them a plug. Well, I know what I'll be doing after the show. Plug skis. We'll have a link for that. Or you can just go to advancedmedia.org. It's episode nine with James. And uh, he's all in with Joyant or Joynet. However you want to say it. I don't judge. I don't judge. Were those things the, the guys that did the sous vide? <laughs> Yeah. Well, I, I yeah, 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 they were. And I I don't know I, I don't know if I, I don't know if we got actually a chance to eat it during the barbecue because it took so long. That's the problem <laughs> with the soup. Uh. But yeah. They did give the go. And they brought the whole unit with the cooler and all of that. So it was me and Adam. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Bachelor Fruit was here too. Of course Dustin was here uh. as well. Yeah. Yeah, yeah so. Adam and I just came down together. I love it. I love it. So uh, their podcast is at advancedmedia.org. Check it out. Advancedtechmedia.org. Check it out for episode nine. You know what I would totally recommend to them if they if they are, if they're not doing this already is they should check out TuneIn because TuneIn is it's a it's a really cool service and what they do is they allow you to basically. Uh, you can you can use their infrastructure to have a mobile app that people can listen to your show or they can listen to a web browser. They can listen to it on the Alexa, all of that kind of stuff. And there's a really cool tool that I really like. It's called EZ Stream. It's a command line based streaming utility that you can use to send an IceCast, uh, either a file or an IceCast stream out to a service. So you can just take, you know, a, a given MP3 and you could put it on a loop. People could go to that TuneIn site and they could uh, and they, they could listen to 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 your show and crazy well here's the thing the problem is when you're first setting this stuff up there's like this config file you have to write and i'll throw the config in the show notes for 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 anyone that wants to play with it but let me tell you the first time here's what it is it's you install the operating system you set up the software and then you try and see if it works and then you're not quite sure well maybe this thing is wrong or maybe that file is wrong or maybe i put this in the wrong location i'll just better start over and then you blow it away and then you start all over again you know what the easiest way to do that is with something like digital ocean digital ocean is Linux on demand. It's like Linux on tap, actually. That's what you could call it. And basically, I can get a Linux server anytime I want it just by going to digitalocean.com. I have, I'd say, probably... I'd say, I think at this point, all but two of my servers on DigitalOcean are on the $5 <laughs> droplets. All of them are on wow. the $5 droplets. Because the $5 droplets just get you everything you need. Of course, they can go up to $10 droplets, $15 droplets, $20 droplets. But it gets even better because if you use the code DOUNPLUGGED, then you get free droplets at least the five dollar ones you can get those for free for two months so if they so these guys they, they want to do a streaming service so they want to set this up and, and have a mobile app they could use easy stream they could go over to DigitalOcean, use that code do unplugged and they'd have a mobile infrastructure for free for the first two months and after that's only five bucks so how do you get better than that DigitalOcean.com. make sure to use the code do unplugged dashboard for day dashboard you and your dashboard i don't you know we've never said the word dashboard on on the ask no show i don't think no 
No, I you are doing though. your viewers a disservice, yeah, my friend. It's a good dashboard. It's an amazing dashboard. You know why? Yeah. I, you, you know why I talk about Ask Noah dashboard. You better be talking about the API. Oh, then, you, because... oh that's right. Yeah, that's you right. Do I say did. that I all yeah. the time on yeah. the show. Oh that's no. True. Okay, that ruined yeah. it. Yeah, no. <laughs> you know, but finish. You should finish your thought though. Why is it that you always talk about the dashboard? I lived in servitude to really, 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 really. Hold on. Really, really bad virtualization <laughs> UIs, and I and I and sometimes like the whole infrastructure, all of it would run on on Linux, and then I would have to have a Windows machine to manage it, and mm. it would drive me so crazy. Well, yeah, not the, the Windows only works in Internet Explorer. Yeah. Oh, yes. oh, ow. oh, it's oh. active, active, ActiveX. Yes, it, Internet yes. Explorer five or six, maybe. Yes, oh. yes, and. I suffered through a lot of that in my day. And so now to go to, to, go to DigitalOcean and have all of it work in whichever browser you want to use on Linux, but more importantly, to have it be better than anything I used. And some of those things, you know, they cost $200,000, $300,000, $400,000 maybe actually. Big spender. Very, well, it wasn't me. It was the businesses that were buying it. And, it was, and you ended up with these total crap UIs. Well, not only that, but it shows that they have total trust in their API because the dashboard is sitting on top of that API. Yeah, yeah it's pretty great. It's pretty great. That's all. That's why I say. You know what? You know what I thought. You know what? You know what I thought you were going to say. I thought you were going to say. Well, I say dashboard because a bunch of people got all upset that I said the word dashboard like twice, and oh, so then they yeah. went on this like they went on this oh, yeah. like rampage to like yeah. Twitter and Reddit right. and all this other stuff. So that's now just, I, I'll just say no, that's dashboard why I every say day. it now. Yeah, I mean that's why I say it for now. <laughs> now that's why I say it. Yes. Okay, so so interestingly enough, in the show, in this show that I'm 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 guesting with you guys, I'm not the one that puts. The, the new Fedora 27 workstation features in the dock. Yeah. I feel very mm, ashamed well, about that. We're ahead Ooh. of the curve over you, here. You see, Noah, that's because you're not running Fedora because you, you hate the, the yeah. uh, distro now. You're, wah, such an ab- you're such an Ubuntu apologizer. Uh, it's embarrassing for yeah. us. It took us hardcore Red Hat users here at JB1 to get this straight. And, you know, there's... <laughs> <clears throat> oh, sorry. <clears throat> yes, right, right. Hardcore Red Hat users. Yes. You know, yeah. we're back to the good old days. <laughs> we're back to the good old days of Linux, where um, Fedora and Ubuntu kind of have the same features, but Ubuntu ships a month early, and uh, so, <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, "Remember, remember that? That's you a great setup it, for Fedora 27." <laughs> but do you remember how it used to be like that? Because it's GNOME again, and a lot of the progress comes from GNOME because that's where the Fedora project invests a lot of its time. And so I joke, but at the same time, a huge part of Fedora 27 is it's everything you love about Fedora with GNOME 3.26. But one of the things for me, as somebody who likes to just follow all of this, is this was really the release that marked the end of the alphas. And there's something else that I just anecdotally noticed that I got to give them credit for. Not only did they kill the alphas with this release cycle, but more than I have ever seen in, in... well, I, I have actually I have followed the Fedora project since it was the Fedora project. I, I you know so I mean literally since I've ever seen this distribution, I have never seen more people anecdotally say across different places that I monitor that this has been the most stable, most reliable beta that they have ever used of the Fedora project. And so not only did they end the alpha sort of release cycle, but they definitely up their game on the stability of the beta. Because just anecdotally, and this is just my observation, monitoring a lot of different sources, having followed this project since it was um, just a a glimmer in somebody's eye, uh, this seems to be the most stable release they've ever had. Now, 
I will say um, selfishly, what I really like about Fedora 27 is this is the release that really lays the groundwork for Pipewire, which is the new media. Oh, data. boy. Yeah. Oh, boy. Yeah. We're excited about that here at Jupiter Broadcasting because this is something that we think Linux really needs to be competitive with Mac OS on the video editing side. And it was something just a year or two ago I thought would never happen. And so the fact that the Fedora project is taking this on, they will they will, for the rest of my life, have my respect. And taking it seriously. I mean, they, yeah. they recognize that this is something Linux community needs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and it, has been, um, it has been something that I thought would never come to bear because it seemed like it took – it would take like this huge multi-project, multi-distro cooperation. But I think Pipewire, the way they're doing it is it's humble. It's a, it's a good, steady, slow approach. So in Fedora 27, it's, it's nothing major. It's just going to handle screen sharing and screen capture under Gnome Shell. It's like laying the fundamental groundwork. And, of course, it's, it's the groundwork to support these functions under Wayland, which couldn't, couldn't be done before. So I really like the way they're, their way, the way they're approaching Pipewire. Uh, the KDE version of Fedora hasn't seen a lot. Um, They've switched to 5.91 for Cube 5. And there's a few other things. But Christian's joining us. He's there. Uh, he, we, he, he is very dutifully filling in at the very last moment uh, to, uh, to join us from the Fedora project to talk about some of the new features. So, Christian, welcome to Linux Unplugged. And I know I've, I've mentioned a couple of features, but I bet I missed some feature of Fedora 27 that is deserved of mention. Yeah, well, <clears throat> thanks for having me. Um, yeah, I think you mentioned some important things. And I mean, I think, one, I mean, you were talking about that, you know, we are a month late, but on the other hand, we spent that last month fixing a lot of last minute bugs in Gnome. So uh, hopefully it's a bit more stable too. Um, for instance, there are a lot of multi-monitor issues that we were hammering sure. on to the last minute to yeah. get sorted. Yeah, I mean, the, one uh, of the things that really stuck out at me when we installed Fedora 27 is uh, it is a straight up showcase for uh, Gnome, mm-hmm. for like upstream Gnome. Oh, yeah. And it's the, the, the background is Gorgeous, and the transparent the transparent bar up top. That it's just it's it's a beautiful default theme for Fedora. It's a great showcase for stock gnome. Yeah, no, thank you. I mean, I think one of the features I would love to highlight a bit, which um, is almost uh, sort of on the side, is is that this is also the first release really where we um, where we have Fleet Commander available, um, which is our new tool for administrating a large number of desktops. Oh, okay. So Fleet Commander. So is is Fleet Commander? You haven't uh, played with Fleet Commander? No, I played with no, Cockpit. Is it like is it related to Cockpit or is it a separate thing? Uh, it's it's an extension of Cockpit. So when when you have Cockpit installed and Fleet Commander, you will actually see a link where you can click into Fleet Commander from Cockpit. Um, so it's um, but of course, um, while Cockpit of course was written and is mainly targeted at doing server administration, uh, Fleet Commander is all about you know administrating desktops. Oh, mm. nice. Um, and, and I mean, the background for Fleet Commander actually was we, we uh, had a discussion actually a couple of years ago uh, in house where we were saying that, um, you know, if you ever want to see, for instance, Linux making a headway uh, in, in corporate settings against Windows, we need to come up with something that's a bit more accessible to people than, you know, telling them to, you know, re- write scripts, figure out how different command and tools work on Linux to configure stuff uh, and instead have something that's all graphical and, and you know, one-click deploy and it integrates with, uh, with people's um, yeah. directory services. You know, Christian, yeah. I have to be wow. honest. It, this, yeah. this is 
This is the dichotomy I have with the damn Fedora project right here. You guys have Cockpit, you have Fleet Commander, you have Atomic, you have Fedora Cloud, you have all of these things that would make Fedora so freaking perfect for deploying in production, except for that fact that the Fedora releases are only supported for a few months and then I gotta upgrade. Like, this is the dichotomy I just can't get over. Yeah, but... I mean, what we've done there, because, I mean, I mean, you know, the first person, of course, who complained about that. But, I mean, for me, Fedora is, is definitely, like, you know, this story targeting like, towards, you know, enthusiast users, developers, and, and people who, who want to, you know, get the news right away, straight off the press. Yeah. And at the same point, of course, I know people were not so happy by use, uh, with CentOS or, or RHEL because I felt it was like, okay, it's fine, RHEL, new RHEL out. But then as the years go by, you know, it becomes a bit long in the tooth for a desktop user. Um, so what we did switch for in, in RHEL 7 is this model where we're actually updating the desktop in RHEL uh, and CentOS, of course, as a result of that, every oh. second release. Okay. Um, so so that way you get a fresh desktop experience continuously. Um, so, so so that's also what I'm telling people when I said, hey, I want a more long-term thing. I said, like, well, you know, I know that historically uh, things like CentOS might not have appealed to you or, or getting a RHEL subscription just because... You didn't want to be there at, you know, uh, the dot, uh, six release and feel that you were using, you know, the desktop yeah. uh, from 10 years ago. But that, that's no longer true. With, with RHEL now, you're getting a brand new desktop every second release and every odd release, we're updating a lot of the major applications there. Okay. And, okay. And, and I think as we go forward, and um, this, so let's call it strategy, we'll, we'll call it come into focus a bit more because, I mean, one of the big goals I, uh, I hope that we will achieve with, with things like flat packs. Is that we certainly can create like you know um, an application uh-huh. stream that's independent of both Fedora and RHEL, so that you no longer have this sort of tight link between like you know which application version you have and which desktop version you have. Sure. Instead, you just have you know, hey, I want the latest GIMP, and I can deploy it either on Fedora or on RHEL, or of course, or RHEL and RHELs. Good point. That's a mm. that's a that's a really good point. Is the, mm. the this may be a non-issue once that's once that's in the pipeline. So um, I I have so many things to ask you about, and I don't know which which you'd rather answer. So I'll give you. I'm going to throw two at you. Actually, how about three, Christian? I'm going to give you three questions, and whichever one you feel more comfortable answering, you go for. So number one is what are your thoughts on on Gnome's position about the system tray icons. To quote the Fedora Project workstation release notes, uh, the quote-unquote antiquated system tray has been removed to reduce visual clutter. So that's question one, is what are your thoughts on that? Question two, if you'd rather answer this, is uh, some big changes in Fedora Atomic, including the support for Kubernetes, have been introduced, which seems like a huge, huge... That was one of the things I was most excited about. Yeah, that seems like a huge change there. And then also uh, some badass support for trim support on encrypted disks. I know that's three totally different topics, Christian, but since you haven't, you know, know, I just thought I'd toss you those three and you pick which one's the best for you to answer. Uh, um, Well, I think the last one is sort of outside my scope. I mean, just to give you a little background on on who I am, um, I'm actually the senior manager for desktop graphics, uh, i8NN and Fedora inside Red Hat. All right. Great to meet you then. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, so of course, um, so even though, of course, the Fedora team that I manage um, are in charge of all the Fedora editions, of course, due to all the other groups being desktop oriented, that's sort of usually where my focus ends up being. So... Um, so I don't necessarily have a lot of insight into call it these other parts of of, uh, of Fedora. Um, so to take I'm also interested tra- in just your yeah. opinions too. So you don't you don't feel like when you come on the show you have to have like I'm speaking on behalf of the Fedora project. I'm just mm-hmm. interested in your opinion as a Linux user too. 
Yeah. Yeah, I mean, so talk to Taylor System Tray. I mean, I think it was something that was signaled for a long time that they wanted to do, stop having people use these status icons because A, they were using an old um, an old extender that uh, was problematic in terms of focus yeah. and other things. Yeah. And uh, so they tried to do this thing where, you know, we, we sent up an announcement saying, hey, you know, eventually this will be deprecated. Um, and of course, nobody ever moved <laughs> on those yeah. deprecation notes. But do you think, but, but what makes you think anybody mm. will move now? Well, well, the hope is, of course, that once it's not a default feature that you have to know install the extension if you want the system tray, um, it will motivate. And at the same time, we do have an active outreach effort at the moment, uh, working with various vendors who are still using the system tray to try oh. to basically say, hey, this is a better way of doing it. Well, that's good. Yeah, yeah. that's nice. I mean, so uh, I'm glad to hear about the outreach. So mm. the thing that crosses my mind is that, see, mm. here's where it gets sticky. And I, again, I know you're not speaking officially, just in your opinion. It seems mm. to me like if the position is we need to stop doing this in the meantime, use an extension. But oh, by the way, that extension's totally going to break in, in, in version uh. four. Uh, I mean, that that is a particular sticky situation, don't you think? Yeah, no, I agree. And, and what I guess was not very well communicated was that, at least, you know, speaking for, for the team I managed at Red Hat, um, I mean, we took ownership of making sure that that extension works in Fedora. Um, and, oh, okay, okay. And, and, and thus, um, I mean, it's, it's it's a community extension, but of course, if if you see that it breaks, we will fix it to make sure it works. Because so, is that, it is our rec- so if I install that tool. on Fedora, is that coming from the Fedora repository? Uh, no, it, it does come from the upstream extension repository, but, but we will go there and fix it. Uh, if oh, the guy officially announced that he was not going to continue maintaining it. Mm. Uh, yeah, so we saw that. So, I mean, as I said, we, we, we will to the degree that as a project, fixing, you're going to keep. It. Ah, yeah. okay. Uh, and I mean, and, do you yeah. have so any I mean, background on that decision? That's that's awesome to hear that. Thank you for mm. telling me that. But what's the? Mm. Do you have any background on did the did the project sort of did Fedora debate? You know, this is something we need to do, or how did that come about? Because I had no idea about this. No, I mean, I mean, well, this uh, we had a decision that that uh, we knew there were some people who had, you know, an old application where where they still acquired a system tray. I mean, I have, I have to say though, uh, I have a couple of applications that still use a system tray icon, but I have forgotten about them, right? Because even with old UI, they were sort of hidden in that little weird corner um, down at the bottom. Yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, the multiple applications that you know build their UI in a way that require it uh, are, are quite few and far between these days. And, yeah. and the few you know about is the ones we're trying to work the hardest with to, to get moving to a different setup. Um, but but in terms of what, you know discussion we had inside uh, Fedora and, and Reddit was like, hey, okay, we, we know that this needs to be there, and of course we need need to step up and make sure it keeps working because. Um, uh, you know, well, at the end of the day, right, we, a lot of these things, you know, end up also in, in REL, and thus we have to make sure our sure. paying customers have things yeah. at work. Yeah. You know, having thought about it for a couple of weeks, I agree. They mm. are kind of user hostile in a sense. Mm. And, you know, the thing is, is if you're if we're all honest with ourselves, it's a paradigm that was that was forced upon us from Windows. And it's one that we just adopted on Linux to fit in. And it, it kind of sucks. It, it, it really actually sucks. And so I'm not a, I'm not opposed to figuring out a better way of doing it. And I think it's 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 pretty decent of the Fedora project to say we're going to try to work upstream to keep this thing working, and it, and and that sounds like it work for all GNOME users too, not just necessarily Fedora. Uh, yeah, yeah, no, exactly. users. yeah, that's pretty cool. That's uh, cool. And also going back to the, th- the the 
gnome three thing since that's i mean that's not going to be deprecated for a while anyway so it'll, that the, the support for this extension will still have a long life even though the guy's not maintaining it it's still he he also said it's going to still be around for a very long time yeah 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 um so i also just to just i'll just touch on this point just to make just to follow back because people that heard it might be wanted to know more uh, so trim support has been around in Fedora for a little while now. But the thing that's really great now is uh, that Fedora 27 has introduced trim support for encrypted disks, which I know Noah is going to care a lot about because it's going to greatly enhance the performance of Fedora Workstation on SSDs that use encryption. And I know that's got to be you, Brown Bear. Absolutely. I <clears throat> I don't own a computer that doesn't have an SSD anymore. Everything has either an SSD or <clears throat> is NVMe, which, you know, SSD. But Ooh. yeah, yeah. For So everything is, and, and you know, everything is going that way too, right? I strongly suspect that for the rest of the time that I ever buy laptops, I'm not going to buy a computer with spinning rust in it. I mean, that's just, that's just the reality of 2017. Hey guys, I want to give one last plug. 855-450-6624. That's the phone number. You can join us live on the air for a special edition of Linux Unplugged. Jay is calling. Hey, Jay, you're on Linux Unplugged. What's on your mind? Hey, um, I'm calling about, uh, well, I'm doing tech support for, well, I, I, I have this one client that I do freelance, and, um, and um, I work as a software developer, actually, but I still have one client that I do freelance that I'm good friends with, uh, the uh, CEO, and I was wondering how I could resolve issues where I make mistakes and I don't feel like I should bill for them. How do you, how do you handle that? If you, if you make a mistake and you spend a lot of extra time doing something and then you feel like you shouldn't bill them, but you still spent the time to get it done. Yeah. So um, part of that, Jay, though, it's an ethics question, right? And the way I answer ethics questions is I simply do the moccasin test. If put the other person's moccasins on and walk a mile in their shoes and see how you feel. So, for example, if you if they asked you, they said, we want you to come install a router for us so that we can get our four front desk machines on the Internet. So what you should do is take the router out of the box and plug it into the modem and uh, turn it on and plug all the computers in <clears throat> and they should just come online. That That's what you need to do. And you'd build the client for like an hour of time. Uh, and, and instead, you pull it out of the box and, uh, you know, unbeknownst to you, maybe you uh, maybe you inadvertently shut the web interface off and you can't figure out how to turn it back on. And you're trying to get in, you're trying to SSH in, so you're calling the manufacturer. What's the default password for the SSH? Oh, yeah, well, I don't know what version I have. And you're, you're doing that dance, right? And so come, lo and behold, you spent four hours doing it. Is that a, if you were the client, would you want to get billed for four hours of work for that while your while your IT guy learned how to do his job right? No, of course not. But at the same time, if you get called in and the client says, "Yeah, we need our internet went down. We don't know what to do," and you say, "Well, I've never been here before. Tell me the layout. Where's your network documentation? Who was the last guy that worked for you?" And they say, "Yeah, we don't know anything about that. Listen, it's that closet at the end. No, that's where your breaker room is. Well, whatever. Then it's the other one over there. That closet. Yeah, okay, that's the right one. So where's the documentation? We don't have any documentation. Uh, there's the owner's." manuals. I think if that's what you're looking for, those are in there. Now, if you're spending time resetting username and passwords and you're spending time tracing wire connections, that's not, I mean, that, yeah, absolutely you should bill for that. And that, and, and that comes down to, again, how would you want to be treated? And so, um, and, and, and sometimes you take a hybrid approach too. Sometimes you get somewhere, some, you know, so far into something like maybe you're tracing a cable and you get to a point and you say, I should oh I'm an idiot. I should have known that this cable would run to that switch room or I should have looked for if there was another switch closet. That may be your fault. That may be something you feel guilty about, but at the same time, unless you were told about that, uh you it's you're perfectly you're perfectly within your right I would say to to build a client. And a lot of times what I'll do in those in those circumstances 
is I will I'll 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 kind of do my no affair billing. So if I look at something and I said, well, I was technically here for six hours, but I think I got about four hours. I think I delivered four hours of work. I'm only going to bill that client for four hours. And I'm if I especially there's a particular client we work for, and they pay me or they would pay me if I billed them for it. They they would pay me hundreds of dollars to stand in front of locked doors because they have this idiotic policy that the security guy is the only guy that can come unlock a door for me. Uh, and so I, I I walk up to the door and I stand there and I call in the front desk and I say, yeah, I need somebody to come. It's just, it's ridiculous. Um, and so if I was billing them, you know, and I would, I would say I'm within my right. If I'm standing there for 15 minutes, every time I need to get through a door, I would be within my right to bill them our $75 an hour. And I don't partly because, well, mostly because I value their business and I like the owner and I understand why those security principles are in place given the nature of their business. Does that answer your question? Uh, yeah, yeah, because I really like to, you know, uh, try and give give um, give my customers the the uh, the kind of service that I would like to have, and it, and 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 I knew that if if someone made a mistake and they were just, you know, spin the wheels for a couple for a couple hours, I wouldn't I wouldn't want to get billed for that. Um, and at the same time, I just I just I spend time on it, and and yeah. I, 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 I did get it done. Yeah. Um, but that's just yeah. yeah I, I hear you. it's kind of a diff- it's kind of a it's kind of an interesting thing to thread. Mumble room. Do you have any thoughts? Is, is the answer I gave is that is that how most of you feel, or somebody have a different opinion? I agree. It just it depends on how much of your mistake, like how much of a setback is your mistake. If it's if it's a something that's not that big of a deal, that you know maybe costs you an extra thirty minutes of time and work, you could you could say that that's um, that's something you could just kind of throw in. But if it's something that you, you, I think if you cause the problem that gives you yourself an extra four hours, I, I think you shouldn't really, but you shouldn't really charge for that if it was, <laughs> if the mistake was solely on your fault, but it was not, you know, a lack of information or something like maybe you configured something and you come back an hour later and you realize, oh, you have to start all over again. This is why you build you research up. into your contract. You build a right. few hours for of research in. Yeah. Yeah. And you pad. And you know, that's the thing too is, I, and I explain this to people a lot. I'll say, if we're going to quote something, we're going to quote high. And some people, uh, you know, they're put, I'm, I mean, I'm serious. If we're, if you're going to over bill, over, I mean, yes, overbid and hundred percent, hundred percent every time. And no, we don't underbill. If I, if I go into a place and I, I'm, I'm being honest, if I go into a place and I think somebody's going to, if something's going to take 10 hours to do, we're going to build that client for 12 or we're going to estimate them for 12 or 15. And the reason for that is because I've done this long enough to know that things come up. And on the off chance that something doesn't come up, well, that just offsets the number of times that something did come up and we went 10 hours over. And like you said, after a while, you start to budget that in and you start to get a good feel of it. Mm-hmm. But if you mm-hmm. and we'll do real time, uh, real time billing, we do that. If you say, just come and do this job, fine, we'll do it. And we'll let you know at the end how long it actually took and we'll bill you for that. But if you want us to stick, because it goes both ways. If I'm going to go in and I'm going to sign my name to something saying we will only bill you for this many hours, well, I'm going to make sure that we don't lose money on it. That's just the way we do things. Um, uh, but, but, you know, more often than that, more, more often than that, more often than I'm worried about not losing money, I'm worried about saving my clients money. Oh. And, uh, yeah, and one of the ways I've done that recently, and this was actually with a law firm, we recommended them with Ting. And Ting, if you're not familiar with it, is a mobile service provider where you own the service and you own the device. I remember the first time I switched to Ting, I... Uh, instantly, I knew – well, there's two things I knew. First of all, I knew that any service that had a URL of linux.ting.com and when I went to that linux.ting.com, yes! it saved me money. If, yes! I, if somebody's going to give $25 to go to a Linux URL, 
that right off the bat, I, I knew that was a good thing. But then after oh. I started to get involved with Ting, and I was previously on a, on a big name carrier, and they sent me the phone, and it felt like my phone because it, they, they're not they're not locked phones. They're not locked to Ting. You can take it to any service you want, and vice right. versa. You can go to Best Buy and buy any phone you want. And bought my son an Asus. Yeah. Uh, do you remember what that was, Chris? He showed it to you when we were in Minneapolis. Zen phone. I bought him an yeah. Asus Zen phone at Best Buy, and we, you know so we I, and I I anticipated this, so I had activated the Ting SIM card, which I have on hand. I have like ten or fifteen of them that I keep around, just you know. <laughs> and uh, we get out to the car, and my son goes. Uh, as soon as he opens a box, I knew this was coming. He goes. Dad, this thing doesn't have internet. How do we get an internet? And I'm like, I got you, buddy. I got you. Here's your SIM card. And I just handed him a SIM card. And with Ting's dashboard, yeah, I said it, dashboard. The dashboard allows me to control how much data he uses, how many minutes he uses, and how many messages he sends. And so I've gone in there and said he doesn't need to be texting anyone. There's nobody he knows that he would know how to text. He doesn't need to do that. We want everything over Telegram where I can monitor his communications. Uh, I don't care if he calls people, but I don't want it to last. I don't. He ne- never needs more than 100 minutes if he accidentally inadvertently dials something yeah. and just yeah. leaves the phone sitting for three days. Yeah. You know, I don't yeah. want a big bill. He's because I'm going to be calling you, Sarah, or right. my son. And, right? and Telegram. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and so... And so they're, they're only pay for what you use and the ability to for that granular type control. Absolutely fantastic. Linux.ting.com. And huge thanks to Ting for sponsoring the Linux Unplugged program. So uh, I have a article. I don't know if you saw this, Chris. I, I threw mm-hmm. it in here kind of last minute. But yeah, I like it. there is a gentleman by the name of Tommy Jordan. Um, really like the guy. And basically, he has a, a, a website that he runs called Eight Minutes of Fame. It's a long story about that relates to a YouTube video that, uh, that kind of cast him into the uh, limelight unexpectedly. But he wrote an, a very interesting article about encryption. And uh, basically, the article starts out and it says, we've seen it plastered all over national news these last two years. The encryption debate between tech companies and civilians wanting to keep their data private while being mm-hmm. weighed against the government's desire to gain access to anything and everything that can be hunted to stop the terrorists. Now, he goes on to say, and he he outlines this very, very well. He says, the government argues that these kinds of data being hidden behind encryption provides important clues that they need to stop terrorists. The data that they're able to retrieve out of a cell phone tablet or encrypted message can be viewed in simple terms, and I think that I can give you an inclusive list. And then he lists them. So what things can we get out of encryption? Well, he says we can get where, where they have been, so the GPS location, when they were there. So you know, when they were there, the timestamp, what they what they read online. So the browsing history, stuff like that, who they've talked to, messenger, telegram, email, contact lists, etc. How yeah. they've communicated, analyzing which apps they've used and, and all that stuff. And then the contextual conversations of the email. And then they show what files they, that they've downloaded onto the device. But you know, the one key thing that is missing out of all that stuff that we could get if we just done away with encryption if we just turned encryption off and it is an on off thing and he goes uh, so far to explain and to make a real big point about that that the government keeps saying they want reasonable encryption there is no such thing as reasonable encryption it's a light switch the light is either on or the light is off there is no in between and if you say if your argument is but, but no what they're talking about is they're saying that they want encryption that's weak enough that the government only can crack well then it's not encryption it's not actually encrypted if the government yeah. can get into it yeah. try and hold a light switch in the middle of the thing and it's either on or off um, yeah. <laughs> but what the, the important thing is, even if we do away with encryption, if we turn that light switch off, you know what? The one thing we don't ever get, why? Why did somebody do this? Why did somebody send this message? Why does somebody feel this way? And the why is the most important aspect yeah. of it yeah. because the why tells you what they're going to do and, you know, and all of that. And so, so I, 
good. I'll I'll say this. Um, the, so this is uh, this is a big problem for open source projects, and I I haven't really figured out how to talk about it yet because it, I don't know how to talk about it without seeming like I'm I'm uh, I like I like I need to get like a tinfoil hat and I need to run around about the sky falling. Right. Because to me, uh, I don't I don't I don't understand. How the U.S. government is going to institute laws about how encryption is implemented that affect open source projects that are developed all over the world they by can't. contributors? Yeah, I, I just don't understand how how can open source comply with anything and and anything anything that the U.S. just just, just decrees encryption must follow. Mm-hmm. Uh, these these projects are, are are built by people all over the world. Yeah. And people that largely couldn't care – people that largely not only don't care what the U.S. government thinks, yeah. but largely want to combat what the U.S. government thinks well, and the or, reason that that encryption exists in the first place. Or oh, – <laughs> that's true, well, I suppose, yeah. Or have no reason to give a shit. Not only right. That, yeah, yeah, yeah. But there are other governments that they also might have to comply true. with that yeah. want the opposite. Well, and, and if the U.S. government decides it wants it, well, then how soon after that does China and Russia it, you know and what, though? all the other governments want it? Honestly, it doesn't matter if every government in the world wants it because what you're fundamentally trying to do is put a genie back in a bottle. I mean, yeah, it yeah. is it – is, it, it's just well, – this to me seems like the same argument is when a celebrity has pictures that are leaked and then they uh, say, we want to start taking them. them down. Yeah, right. Don't yeah. look at them. Like, well, that, I, I think what they're going to ask for, and when I say they, I mean the U.S. government, is they're going to ask for some sort of escrow system where they're not going to say, give us the keys, give us the back door, put it in an escrow. And then when we have a lawful, when we when the mm-hmm. FISA court gives us the lawful right to peek, we will go to this escrow and we will activate the back door. So they'll Wait, go to Apple. Second. Where's my rubber stamp? It's around here somewhere. Oh, there it is. Okay. They'll go to Apple. They'll go to Google and they say, with your messaging platforms, and they'll eventually go to Telegram and WhatsApp and all of them that they can. And the only the, only the systems like Wire and Signal that are, are better designed will be immune from this. Everything else, Skype's already a victim, will be in Slack, I'm sure. Will be subject to this. Do you know the, the thing is though the people that care are going to know. I mean, it's not going to be a secret. I mean, they, they, it, it's a secret the first time, and then after the first person is convicted or or their messages are decrypted, then then the cat's out of the bag, and then everyone that cares about keeping their stuff private is going to move to something else. So it only I would like, it, I you know, it seems like a hear, one burn match. I, I would oh, like but, to hear from somebody from the mumble room who maybe is even outside the U.S. a bit or inside the U.S. is fine, but you know this is something that's going to affect the whole world. Yeah, to make actually one point there, though, I mean, I have no direct knowledge about this, but I mean, what the US government or any government can do, right, they can enforce what local companies do. Uh, And so, I mean, it's not just about stopping, you know, Osama bin Laden kind of guys here. I mean, it's also about like, you know, catching white collar uh, criminals, for instance, in, uh, in, uh, in big banks or whatever. And of course, if you have policies in place that enforces this bank to, for instance, provide any encryption key they use to escrow that means that they can get to you know the email exchanges whatever that's happened inside that company yeah but i i i mean i don't mean to be the uh cynical person of the room but to me it seems like anybody who wants to break the law in any significant way is going to be hip enough to realize they shouldn't use any system that's been proactively tapped by the u.s government they'll use a system outside of that and there will right. always be systems outside of that and the only people subject to monitoring will be the standards regular old 
Joe Schmoes. Let me pose it. Uh, let me let me pose it. Let me pose another question to you guys. The prob- one of the problems with giving up encryption is that if you had a guy, and this is the article, I'm not, I'm not coming up with this. This is in the article. If a guy goes through an airport and he is caught trying to bomb that airport, and they take him down and they search his person and they find a camera. I don't think anyone in this room would argue that that camera is not pertinent to the investigation of why this guy was trying to blow up the airport. It might contain evidence, right? We agree on that. But the camera might only contain 30 or 40 pictures. When we start talking about they want access to you know, your Google photos, we're yeah. not talking about the last right. 30 or 40 pictures you took. You're talking about everything you've ever done, yeah. the entire I mean, scope of your yeah. life. When, you, when you're talking about the phone, right? You're talking about every Wi-Fi access exactly. point. Yeah, exactly. And so, and so who thinks that who out there legitimately thinks that any government has the right that once you commit one crime because of that one crime, and actually really, you're accused of committing a single crime. Why? Who out there actually believes that the government should get unfettered access to every, your entire digital life which is more and more of our actual lives these days who actually thinks that's fair i would say it's 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 a bigger problem than that though because uh we can all decide as uh as a democracy that, or, <laughs> and and the republic of the united states we can all decide that's fine the, the land of the brave and the free that we want to be screened we want our devices scanned we want everything downloaded that is totally fine. 100% as a democracy, we've decided it's great. I'm talking like in the future, we've decided we are going to trade all of our freedoms for security. The thing is, that doesn't necessarily mean that the citizens of Canada want to live that way. Right. And the problem that open source has to address here is how do we serve a market as huge as the United States that has all of these fuck crazy laws that are essentially 1984 draconian laws that the rest of the world except for Iran and Russia and Syria those countries have these laws in place but outside of that nobody no other no other modern democracy has these kinds of laws in place so how do we serve the United States and everywhere else and I don't understand how you're going to have people that can contribute to one common code base that have significantly different laws that they have to adhere to can work together. I don't understand how you can ship one distribution for the U.S. and one distribution for Canada when we have significantly yeah. different encryption laws that fundamentally mean backdoors into encryption versus no backdoors. I mean, Chris, it's really easy. You just have a setting in the settings. You flip a switch <laughs> between right, yeah, totally crappy yeah. encryption. We can have a encryption. dashboard, American, American weak encryption, and world encryption. <laughs> that can that well, can I be mean, a f- the, this, the solution is obviously turning all the U.S. laws into internet laws, and everybody has to associate to those. Right, so that, and we'll all go everything. by UTC. Right. And well, that, that's the one logical thing I've heard in this conversation. But no, I, you know, it's it, it's going to be something interesting because this, to me, seems like it's largely one of those things that is is a driving force in one direction. I I I very seldom see anyone, the government, reversing its opinion and suddenly deciding, well, actually, you know, we're not going to push to to try and break encryption. And and the one thing that we have working in our favor is this is the one time when market reality and social reality doesn't really mean anything, where really it's about the technical advantages. That's really what matters. So I, I, I so it's good. actually a funny thing about the one of the recent releases from <laughs> uh, from the current government is that they they are saying that they're kind of pulling back on not wanting the encryption broken. But, you know, 
just ca- just make copies of everything so we can look at them later. Anyway. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it's like I said, it's it's one of those things that I think as long as we have the technical superiority superiority in our corner, um, I think we're going to be sitting good. Hey guys, thanks so much for joining us for this episode. I really appreciated uh, letting me guest host with you. That'll put this episode of Linux Unplugged in the books. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at West Payne at Chris Las. Follow the network at JB Live. I'm at Colonel Linux, and of course at Rakai. LP. Oh, there's a message coming up. There we go. There's Telegram. Okay, uh, thanks so much. Make sure, hey, what you check out jupiterbroadcasting.com. You'll find the schedule for the show as well as all of the show times. Check me out, asknoahshow.com, and uh, we'll see you next week. Negative in the freedom dimension. Something tells me you like having the ability to scream like a madman without it actually winding up in a recording that matters. No, no, I like it. No, I don't think oh. I've ever heard that long into the outro before. I've never heard it. End. I felt like I was just jiving with it. It was, it was good. I like, you, yeah. what, what did you say, Wes? You, that, I was, was, did I play fun. the wrong one? No, no I'm just ne- we just never we cut it off before we usually then. Keep, we oh. usually talk, or sometimes I just hard cut it. You, you know, know. We, we oh really? Oh, you don't sometimes. let that that nice grad. That's such a good fade. That I must know. Have, it's good uh, though. It's good, right? I mean, I did originally, in, I did originally build that fade to just let it play out, but then, yeah. you know, in the last thirty weeks or so, I, we've started talking <laughs> over it. Yeah, <laughs> it's just something we that just happened. can't shut up because yeah. everything's too much fun. <laughs> That's what the thing is. Yeah. Not right, only well, did I not only did I let it play out, then I gave it a good like one or two seconds before I started talking. So Rakai has a nice tight cut point. <laughs> All right, so we got to pick a title. We got to pick. A oh title. yeah. Ooh, I haven't participated oh, in this process in a long time. Ooh, I'm gonna do this. Okay. Yes. Well, the, the process is kind of uh, convoluted now. No. <laughs> You just oh, go is it really? Dis- you, well, you go to the Discord, you search for your bang suggest, and then you can oh. also go to JB Titles for the chat room. So you, yeah. you can't do you, – it's not JB Titles anymore? I'm sorry. You can go to both. Oh, you can do both. Oh, okay. So you got to search the um, <laughs> – you got to search the you got to search the Discord for okay. uh, bang suggest because you can just – it turns out Discord has a great search. So you just search for bang suggest, and you just see all of them in one result. And then JB Titles uh, for, you know, like the bot action. Hmm, I'm not liking any of these titles. Yeah. Well, what we do need... you think we should go with? What? What? Anybody in the Fedora moment? Quantum Leap. Hmm. Mm, that's not bad, mm, but that was a very man. small part of the uh, the total show. Hey, yeah. Thank you, Christian, well, for joining us. That's, that's, that's a combo thing. I don't know if there was a was there a big part of the show. Hey, before yeah, we not. get out of the post show, I I'm because I wanted to mention in the main show that uh, Dan here from Elementary OS was just recently over on Late Night Linux had a great interview. They gave him a few hard questions, and he was—he had some great answers. So, if you want to hear Dan have to answer some tough questions, go check out Late Night Linux. Uh, do you remember what episode number it was, Dan? You know, uh, that's no. a great yeah. question. Uh, you know, what I'm going to do, Dan, is what I'm going to do is while you and I look it up, is I'm just going to fill a little bit of airtime, and by doing so, I'm just going to sit here and talk. 
for a few moments because what you want to do, right, is you want to Google it real quick. Twenty-four episode yeah. twenty-four, everyone. Hey, good job. <laughs> yeah, episode twenty-four of Late Night Linux has uh, this here uh, Dan the Rabbit in there, and uh, he answers the hard questions about elementary OS that have been on your mind. By the way, we forgot something for the Mozilla review. There's a new chapter in the book of Mozilla right now with the quantum release. It's now chapter 11, colon 14. You know the story about that. Well, chapter 11 here in the United States, I think, means <laughs> bankruptcy. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. That's not a good thing. <laughs> you, you, open, you open the Mozilla browser and you type in about colon Mozilla. And you will get a chapter which normally tells you about the release and the time of the release. So if you have version 16, it starts with the Twins of Memon Quarreled. And now with version, with the new version, the book of Mozilla is 11 colon 14, which started the beast adopted new raiment and studied the ways of time and space and light, and it goes on like that. Well, it's, some change, kind of Easter egg. it's some kind of Easter egg. Hey guys, hey guys, Jordan, uh, Jordanism from the uh, chat room suggested, remember when JB cared about IRC? That really seems like that'd be appropriate for the title, don't you think? That seems like that'd be a really fucking good title for this episode. It'd be really fucking <laughs> I think perfect. It, I think it really exemplifies what happened in yeah. the episode. I yeah. think we talked about it yeah. a lot throughout the yeah. episode. There was a lot it of good really, discussion. It's really respectful for all of the work that 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16 people put into this week's episode. And all the topics we covered. Yeah, that's really, that's great. That's, <laughs> thank you, Jordan. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy! I wanted, I wanted to kick Chris's nostalgia a little bit because mm. you, you'd mentioned uh, OpenSUSE in the box. It actually yeah. didn't come with one book; it came with two. So it came oh. with the user manual. Uh-huh. Yep. But then it, um, I don't remember when they started doing this, but they put a second book in there with all the printed man pages. Oh, uh, that's what it was. I couldn't remember. I thought so. Good, good memory, good recollection. Do you have like a box around it? Have you looked at a box recently? How did you remember that? No, I, I don't have my box anymore, and that's depressing. I threw it away. Oh, that's sad. Yeah, that's what she said. <laughs> man, printed man pages. That sounds really nice, though. Just keep it right on your desk. Thumb through it. That's sure, a box. That's searchable. amazing. <laughs> totally searchable. I love it. Well, okay, so we got to title this thing. We gotta, we gotta get a name for this thing because this is. Uh, <laughs> This is going off the rails. I, I tell you what, Chris, <laughs> I got a real, I, I got a real crash course in installing applications in Fedora. Oh yeah, we should talk about that. The beard had to install a few apps on Fedora for yeah. the show today. We didn't even get to that. It was a lot less Fedora than I expected. I, uh, I installed apps via five different methods, or attempted to anyway. First, you have the uh, the normal DNS software. Oh, oh, okay. And you then, didn't go GUI first. Who goes GUI? For installing yeah, I software. Don't know. I don't know. <laughs> people I mean, that it's... like to install software with ease? It's for people who like I to don't... mess with a computer. <laughs> DNS. DNS is pretty easy. And plus, the other thing is uh, three of the methods don't have uh, ways to do it via the software. <laughs> oh, okay. So, I was pleased that Slack had an RPM I could easily install. That was nice. Yeah. Okay. The second thing I tried, and uh, this was actually pretty easy, to get Chrome installed you just add the third-party Chrome repo from Google. 
Are you telling me they have a repo for Fedora? Yeah. Well, that's they, good. they did the same thing for uh, Debian as well. I got to be honest with you. I'm 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 sorry, guys, but shh, Firefox. The uh, <laughs> <laughs> the third method. Firefox is the best, Ooh. obviously, for sure. The third method, which I managed to get nothing installed via, is Copper. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so okay, that was no good. No. Uh, the fourth method was uh, enabling RPM Fusion. That was to get Telegram installed. Mm. Oh, nice. And okay. the fifth method method because I could not get. Uh, Discord via uh, RPM Fusion or Copper was that I also had to use Flatbacks. Oh my so god! I, I enabled a Flat Hub and I installed that via the the uh, software uh, stuff. Okay, so okay, so let's back up for a second. So what did you say before Discord? What did you install before Telegram. Discord? How did so? How did the Telegram thing go down? How does that work? So did you? What did you do to get Telegram working? Uh, RPM Fusion. So you added a repo. Yes. So you did like a DNF. Command series of DNF commands, yeah. and then did you install it via the command line, or did you install it via the software center? Command line. Okay, and then the last thing you installed was Discord, and you installed that via Flatpak. But you added a repo for uh, Flatpak. Yeah, I enabled a uh, uh, FlatHub. And did you install it then after that via the command line or via GNOME software? GNOME software. Interesting. So now it just shows. Because I actually couldn't figure out how to install it via the command. So line. you added the Flatpak repo. <laughs> And then you you opened GNOME software and you searched for Discord yep. and then Discord and it, showed it, up. It told me that the the source was FlatHub. Oh, oh. interesting. In, in, in when you want to install Flatpak Flatpak from the the command line, you also have to include the repo in the Flatpak command. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not a big fan of that. It's a little convoluted. But uh, yeah, that seems counterintuitive. Like I already added the repo. Why is it not just searching the Enabled repos. Yeah, welcome to PPAs. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, I know. This is this is so. This well, is PPAs don't require you to tell the repo after you have it installed, though. So. No, but you do have to do an update, right? So you add the PPA, you add the key when it's you true. add the, and then you have to yeah. do an apt update, and then you have to do the, then you do the install. It feels a lot like PPA. Yeah, but with uh, flat packs, you have to every time you install the app, you have to specify the repo URL. That's true. Yeah, yeah that's true. Yeah, I really everyone should use everyone should use a UI anyway. That's how we designed it. Say again. Everyone should use GNOME software. I mean, that's the yeah. whole point here to right. move away from needing command line tools. For it everything. definitely, it definitely does feel like that. Like the whole thing is pretty straightforward if you just install the repo, though, right? Well, that's true. Yeah, adding the repo, you still drop to the command line. Yeah, I, I the reason I tried to do it via the command line was because I was already on the command line to add the repo. I don't think there is a way in GNOME software to add it through no, add it, no, add no, a FlatHub anyway. Yeah, that does seem like something that needs to get. I guess that does feel like a feature that needs to be added because it'd be you, nice. Yeah, yeah. I, I yeah, actually well, one one thing we're looking to do there actually since, since we're on the subject is um, uh, we are going to start pre-populating uh, this database with various repos, um, so that uh, so the, the setup will be that when you start Fedora, since it's uh, meant to be all free software, you will get a question as part of the initial setup saying, "Hey, do you want to enable third-party repositories?" And if you say yes, uh, a lot of these things like Chrome and and uh, Steam and uh, Nvidia Driver and and and, uh, and so on will just be pre-populated uh, ah, for you to download. That's wonderful. Hmm. <coughs> yeah, I I I uh, when I they they do, it seems like it seems like a decent solution. Like I the more I the more I see distributions implementing Flatpak, the more I see how it really does make sense for a lot of different yeah different uses for open source software. Yeah, I think if I do use um 
Fedora in the future, I'm going to start with Flat uh, Hub. Yeah, it, yes, exactly. That's what I would do too now. Because it seems like it has most of what I wanted. Like I actually just searched Telegram and GNOME software, and now there's two different versions. I have one from Flat Hub and one from <laughs> Yeah uh, RPM yeah. Fusion. And then you can, and then the fact is, you can still get Snaps working on there too. Yeah. So that kind of covers some of the other space. And then it's like, well, what do you have left that isn't covered by those two right. things? And that, the it's list Chrome. is. <laughs> well, <laughs> but thankfully they package it for the distro you want. Yeah. I mean, they're yeah. doing that work now. But right, yeah. I could see if one of these things takes off either way. The, I could see Google changing that. If if uh, Fedora supported both Snap and Flatpak, then that would solve most of the issues of packaging entirely. Mm-hmm. And I'll use App Image for everything else. Oh, right. <laughs> there you go. 